Joseph, haven't we? Um, as part of our larger series, Stories That Transform. Um, I didn't intend to take three weeks over this um, one story, but as I read it and, and reread it, I just couldn't work out how to squeeze it all into one 20 minute sermon. So instead, you've had three 25 minute sermons. Um, but if you are sitting there thinking, you know what, enough is enough, Dan. I've, I'm sick to the back teeth of Joseph. Don't worry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up this morning, I promise. Having said that, um, we've actually only looked at four chapters over the past two weeks, and there are at least five to six chapters left in this story. The book of Joseph takes up a fifth of the book of Genesis. And so there are going to be some details that I will need to skim over but please do have a look for yourself. So, very quick recap then, just to make sure we're all on the same page. Joseph lived with his father Jacob, sometimes called Israel, and his 11 brothers, and probably some sisters as well, but they're not mentioned. Joseph doesn't get on with his brothers. He's arrogant, a bit of a show-off, daddy's favourite. And so the brothers, all except Reuben, um, put him into slavery, sell him into slavery, uh, and fake his death by drenching his coat in goat's blood. Nice and gory. Um, Joseph ends up in Egypt working for one of the Pharaoh's officials, a guy called Potiphar, and things go well for a while. Um, Unfortunately, he resists the advances. Well, not unfortunately. Courageously, he resists the advances of Potiphar's wife, um, but she accuses him of attempted rape, and he is thrown into jail. In jail, he ends up befriending a cupbearer to the Pharaoh and a baker, both of whom have disturbing dreams. Unlike Freud, Joseph is quite good with dreams, and he interprets both of their dreams. Neither has anything to do with their mothers. Um, The cupbearer ends up back in the service of the pharaoh, but forgets all about Joseph. Until two years later, when pharaoh has some bad dreams of his own, Um, which causes the cupbearer to remember. So the pharaoh hoiks him out of jail, and once again, with God's help, Joseph interprets the dreams of the pharaoh. They're all to do with the land. Seven years of famine versus seven years of plenty. Um, The pharaoh ends up being very impressed with Joseph. And so he puts him in charge of food collection and food distribution. He says, you need to help us get all the food in when the crops are good so that we can survive through the bad times. He gives him a ring, some nice robes, a sick gold chain, gives him a new name, uh, Zaphananath Paneer, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, a wife. Uh, basically takes really, really good care of Joseph. And this kind of seems like maybe a really good place to end the story. It's sort of um, a happy ending, isn't it, for our protagonist? The classic kind of rags-to-riches tale. Except that this is the Bible that we're dealing with. And the Bible is always more messy and more complicated than we expect, because life is always more messy and more complicated than we expect. But before we get into the final twist, I want to just share with you just two details from chapter 41. This is where we finished last week, chapter 41. And there's just a couple of things I didn't have time to get into last week. Firstly, during the seven years of plenty, Joseph has two sons. He has two sons, maybe some daughters as well. Birth control was hard to come by back then. But notice what he names his sons. He calls them Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh and Ephraim. 
And Manasseh means causing to forget. So Joseph says, God has made me forget all of my trouble and he's made me forget all of my father's household. And Ephraim means fruitful. And Joseph said, God has made me fruitful. So forgetful and fruitful. Interesting names. Hold that thought. Secondly, we're told that Joseph is 30 years old when he enters um, the Pharaoh's service, which is my age, seven years ago. Um, <coughs> and when the story started, Joseph was 17. He was 17, he was just a teenager, which means that this is 13 years later. 13 years later. For 13 years, Joseph has been in Egypt in captivity. First as a slave and then in prison. 13 years thinking about what his brothers did to him. How they threw him in a pit. How they sold him for 20 shekels. How he pleaded with them not to, let, not to do it, to let him out, to let him go free. And they ignored him and sold him anyway. 13 years thinking about the life that he might have had. Out in the fields with the flocks. 13 years thinking about his father and his mother, and his home, and all that he lost. And so it's no wonder when Pharaoh frees him and gives him back everything that was taken from him, and much more besides, that he calls his first son Manasseh. It seems that he desires nothing more than to close that chapter of his life, to forget all about his brothers, all about the years of his life that were stolen from him in jail. Maybe in that that beautiful moment where he held his son for the first time, he was able to let go of some of that bitterness and anger in his heart. Maybe he felt it becoming washed away and thought, I can finally move on. I can finally forget the past and claim this this new life that God has given me. But the trouble is, of course, that the past has a way of catching up with us, doesn't it? Genesis Chapter 42, if you have your Bibles with you, and if not, the words are going to be on screen. So our scene shifts from Joseph and his new family in Egypt, all the way back to Canaan and Joseph's old family. And things uh, are a little bit tense. Verse 1, it says, When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? Get off your backsides and do something. He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Good idea, right? So 10 of Jacob's sons go to Egypt to buy grain, but Jacob refuses to let Benjamin go. Remember, Benjamin and Joseph had the same mother. So it seems that Jacob is still carrying the trauma of what happened to Joseph. Verse 6, now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold the grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now this is the time of the famine, so at least another seven years has passed, probably a bit longer, which means it's been about 20 years, over 20 years since his brothers have seen him, 
photos weren't very good back then because they didn't exist. Um, however, Joseph recognized them, you know, perhaps having spent all of those years thinking about what was done to him. That isn't that surprising. Just imagine how he must have felt in that moment. The, the thoughts that must have been racing through his head. What should he do? How should he react? What should he say? Should he tell them who he is? Should he send them away? Have them executed? Forgive them? This is a very, very tense moment. I mean, think about your own life. Think about those times that you've come face to face with somebody who has hurt you, somebody who has wronged you, somebody who has mistreated you in some way. How did you feel then? What thoughts went through your head? It's hard to keep the emotions in check, right? Because although he may have named his son Manasseh, right here and now, his past was staring him in the face and asking for help. What will he do? Now, the compassionate amongst us, or maybe those of us that just like a, a happy ending, would perhaps want him to run to them and throw his arms around them and say, it's me, it's Joe, it's your brother. Hey, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great how God has brought us all back together? Let's, let's have a party. Let's hang out. Woo, 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 woo. Which is, um, you know, good, isn't it? But if you've ever actually had to forgive someone for some real hurt that they've caused in your life, you'll know it's not always that easy, is it? Sometimes as much as we might look inside of ourselves, we really struggle to find the strength that's required to forgive someone. So what does Joseph do? Well, he quizzes them about their family. He asks whether the father, Jacob, is alive and Benjamin is alive. Maybe just checking to see if they hadn't sold him into slavery too. And then he accuses them of being spies and then he throws them in jail. Now, if you're thinking that Joseph seems a little bit emotionally unstable at this point, I'd say two things. Firstly, how would you feel if you'd spent 13 years as a slave and in chains because of your brothers? And secondly, wait until you see what he does next. <clears throat> now, part of the reason Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him was it had been 20 years, but also he'd have been dressed in his Egyptian finery. Remember his, his new ring and his chain and all the rest of it. Um, but also he spoke Egyptian now, as you would if you'd lived somewhere for that length of time. And so the brothers didn't know that he could speak Hebrew. And when Joseph came to see them after three days, they were busy chatting away in front of him. And in verse 21, it says, They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. And now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. And then it says in verse 24 that Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. Began to weep. If we were under any illusion as to how hard this was for Joseph, this is the first of five occasions in this story where we hear about Joseph weeping. On two occasions he has to turn away from his brothers. On one occasion he weeps so loudly and for so long that it's overheard by his attendants and the report goes back to Pharaoh. But think about it, it's the first time that he's heard his brothers speaking remorsefully about their actions. We didn't listen. This is what we deserve. It's not 
quite repentance, but it's at least an acceptance that what they did was wrong and that they deserve to be punished for it. You see, while Joseph had forgotten and become fruitful, Manasseh and Ephraim, they had become remorseful and destitute, racked with guilt over their actions. Surely now, Joseph would embrace them and say, it's me. Joe, I'm alive. You, you don't have to feel this guilt anymore. I release you. I, I forgive you. But he's not ready yet. Things are still too raw. He has Simeon brought before them and bound. He fills their sack with grain and sends them home and says, you need to return with your youngest brother to prove to me that you're not liars. And he also hides the silver that they came with to buy the grain in their sacks. And the story never really explains why he does this, whether it was love for his family or maybe he wanted them to feel like thieves after all they'd stolen from him. Or maybe he just wasn't ready to receive anything from them yet. And so the brothers return home and Jacob is upset that they've lost another brother, Simeon. They try to convince Jacob to let them return to Egypt, but he refuses. And so they do their best to live off the grain that they've collected. And Joseph, meanwhile, is left to ponder, what now? What should he do? I wonder if he'd had another son at this point, what he might have called him. God has caused me to remember. God has given me an opportunity to forgive. Does God want to fix my family? God has given me lots of sleepless nights. You see, I think even though Joseph had been freed from the Pharaoh's prison and liberated from slavery, he wasn't yet free from his past. The anger that he felt in his heart towards his brothers probably haunted him. His inability to forgive kept him trapped in a prison of a different kind, one that he was able to ignore for a while because God had so transformed his life. He'd given him a new land and a new people, a new hope, a new family, a new father figure in Pharaoh who didn't just give him a coat, but much more besides. But while his ex external circumstances were finally good, his internal circumstances were not. The transformation that needed to take place now was in his heart. He needed to let go of the pain of the past and find a way to forgive. And um, he does it. He does it, but only when he realizes something. And I'll tell you what that is in a minute. On to chapter 3, the grain doesn't last and Jacob says, go back and buy us more food. Judah says, no way, mate, not without Benji. They argue, but in the end, Jacob agrees and sends them with loads of gifts to try and curry favor. The brothers get to Egypt, Joseph sees them and he sends them to his home and they begin to panic and think, why, what's going on, what's he going to do to us? And they said, look, we brought extra silver, we ended up with the silver from last time coming home with us, we don't know what happened, but we've got more, it's all here now, everything's going to be fine. And Joseph says, don't worry, I had your silver last time, this must have been a gift from God. Obviously, pointing them towards God again. And they have dinner together, sort of, Egyptians and Hebrews don't eat together. And in verse 30, Joseph has another little cry at the sight of Benjamin, emotions are running high. Maybe, maybe the perfect time for the big reveal. But Joseph decides to play one final trick on them. He has their stewards fill their sacks with grain again, return the silver again. But this time he also asks for his divination cup to be hidden in Benjamin's sack. And when they leave, he sends their stewards after them and accuses them of stealing the cup. The brothers protest. 
but the trap is set and Benjamin is implicated. So they return to Joseph's house and Joseph demands that in recompense, Benjamin becomes his slave. And then Judah speaks up. Now we have to remember at this point that Judah was the brother that suggested selling Joseph into slavery. Undoubtedly, Judah would have been the hardest to forgive for Joseph. But like Joseph, Judah had been through a lot in his life. He wasn't the same man he used to be 20 years ago. He'd lost two sons. Life had softened him. And he explains to Joseph that the grief his father would feel at the loss of Benjamin would send him to his grave. And in chapter 4, verse 33, he says, Please, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let the boy return home to his brothers, with his brothers. He volunteers to go into slavery in place of Benjamin. And Joseph can see this is not the same man that he knew 20 years ago. He is remorseful, repentant even, not willing to repeat the same mistakes of the past. And finally, Joseph can control himself no longer. He sends his attendants away and he breaks down and he tells his brother everything. And then we find these words in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 45. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. You see, Joseph was finally able to forgive his brothers, not because they deserved it, not even because they asked for forgiveness, although I suppose they might have done if they'd had a chance to, but because he recognized all that God had done in his life. He was no longer looking at what had been done to him by his brothers, but what had been done through him by God. The grace and forgiveness that he'd received in his own life. The new platform that God had given him, even his ability to now rescue the lives of his family. He realized that he had no right to hold on to his anger because God had used the circumstances of his life to transform him and transform those around him. To bless him and to bless others as he had promised to do all those years ago through Abraham. <clears throat> There's a bit more to the story, but you'll have to read it for yourself. But his whole family ends up in Egypt under his care. And Joseph's forgiveness leads to the flourishing of a nation. Really the founding of a nation. But let me just leave you with, with four simple observations from this story. Four things that, that really struck me as I read this story this week. Firstly, forgiveness is hard. Forgiveness is really, really hard, actually. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive, as we had during the war. And then to mention the subject is to be greeted with howls of anger. You know, Joseph spent over 20 years separated from his family, but I've known people that have been separated from their friends and family for much longer than this. People that have cut family members out of their lives because of an argument that was had 30, 40, 50 years ago. 
I mean, don't get me wrong, sometimes the best we can do is move on from people that have hurt us, but sometimes we end up creating distance between them, but keeping the pain and the hurt close. Or feeling like we've moved on. Like Joseph did when he named his son Manasseh, only to receive a painful reminder when we run into them again, somewhere unexpected. Forgiveness is hard. Secondly, forgiveness can take time. You know, in many ways, this story, it seems really strange, doesn't it? There's all the kind of back and forth and go home and come back and fetch your brother and let's have dinner and where's my cup? And... But sometimes when we try to forgive, we can find ourselves stalling. Balling up the letter we've written or hanging up the phone. Coraline Butchman says, forgiveness is not a one-off decision. It's a journey and a process that takes time determination and persistence. Forgiveness is not forgetting, it's simply denying your pain the right to control your life. It's not easy, and it can take time. Thirdly, forgiveness becomes easier when we take the focus off of ourselves. Now, I might seem like a strange thing to say, especially when we are the one that's been hurt or we are the one that's been wronged, but it was by recognizing all that God had done in his life that Joseph was finally able to move on. And didn't Jesus tell a story about a king who freed one of his servants from a great deal of debt that he owed, only to later hear that that same servant had gone out and refused to forgive the debt of another servant, a much smaller amount that was owed? And he said, shouldn't you have had mercy as I had mercy on you. Forgiveness demands forgiveness. We've all been recipients of God's grace and mercy. Most of us, a lot of us, are even in a position like Joseph where we're able to uh, help others. Let's not hold on to the past, but offer the freedom that we have found to others. And fourthly and finally, is that forgiveness actually has the power to transform. That's what we've been looking at, right, with these, these stories that, that transform. Paul Bowes says, forgiveness does not change the past, but it does enlarge the future. It doesn't change the past, but it does enlarge the future. You know, I've noticed when I've kept people in an unforgiveness in my own life that my world becomes a lot smaller. It just becomes about me and them and the thing that was done between us plays on you, doesn't it? Stays in your mind. Haunts you even. It's like an imprisonment. It's like you, you become trapped by that hurt. But when we come to a place where we're able to finally forgive and to let go, there's a freedom, there's a, there's a lightness, there's a restoration that comes. An ability to see beyond what has been done to us. It's not easy. It's never easy. As I said at the start, you know, those of us that have had to forgive people know how hard that is. But I think it's always, always worth the pursuit. I wonder if the band would come and join us on stage. I just want to create a little bit of space this morning for um, us to respond to this message. Maybe just to think about 
our own lives, whether we're watching in the room or whether we're watching online, whether there's anybody that we know right now who we've just been holding in unforgiveness for a really long time. I know how hard that is. And sometimes even when it's been a long time, it can still feel just as painful. And we can ignore that pain for a while. Joseph, with all his finery, life seemed a bit easier, didn't it? But I think very often God is still wanting to do that final work in our heart to not just transform our external circumstances, but to transform our internal circumstances as well. Maybe let's just close our eyes for a minute. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come and meet with us. And if this morning you're there and you think, you know what, I'm fine, there's nobody. There's nobody in my life that I need to offer forgiveness to. Maybe you could just begin to pray quietly in your spirit for for those in the room who are really struggling with this at the moment. Heavenly Father, we just invite you to meet with us here this morning. God, would you just send your Holy Spirit. And Father, if there are people that we have been holding in unforgiveness... People that maybe have really, really hurt us. That have really wronged us in some way. Just as Joseph was so wronged by his brothers. God, would you just bring them to mind? And God, as we hold them in our mind, would you just begin to remind us of all that you have done for us? the many ways that you have shaped our lives, the forgiveness that we have received from you through Jesus and his work on the cross. And God, as we receive that grace and forgiveness again, would you just help us to begin to let go of the pain, to let go of the hurt, to let go of the damage. Father, would you just transform our hearts this morning?